what we're going to talk about together, I've, I've been asked by Chad to talk about the key elements for gospel saturation. How do we really go about discipling a city? And I, I want to just start by saying I'm not an expert in this. I'm still trying to figure it out, okay, honestly. Uh, but I, I do think Paul was pretty good at it. So we're going to look at what he did. That's what we're going to do. And um, I am trying to help others think through a grid or a framework for how to think holistically about reaching their whole city. In fact, Chad and I were just in Liverpool, and we were, he was there because of what you guys are doing in Houston. It's just a beautiful display of how to come together around church planning specifically. I think this is, the city has really seen some really beautiful things happen in collaboration around church planning. So Chad was sharing some of the story. And there were 12 cities from the UK represented in this meeting. And uh, just as a humble beginning, but leaders from each of these cities were there saying, what if we could work together collaboratively in our city for the sake of the gospel so that saturation might happen throughout all of the UK? And uh, I, I was framing up what is it going to take in terms of what do we collaborate around? Because I think when I go to cities and I'm trying to help them think through a collaborative work for gospel saturation, the question is, well, what do we unify around? What do we collaborate around? And uh, obviously, this room represents a whole lot of different theological tribes. So if you're expecting to have that be your primary way in which you, uh, you collaborate around, you're going to be limited because you're going to disagree on some things. And obviously, there's probably a, a, a bandwidth that you've got to work within, and we can talk about that later if you want in terms of when I counsel a city, what are, what are the guardrails that we're staying within to stay within orthodoxy. But what we're going to talk about are just five key elements or initiatives that I think you'll see in the life of the Apostle Paul as he entered into a city. So this may not be groundbreaking at all. Uh, in fact, I hope it isn't. Because <laughs> if it's new, then I probably am telling you something that I shouldn't. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of what we need to do is just go back to what we know. Uh, but here's what I want you to do as we go through it. And I'm going to frame up these five things. We're going to talk about two of them in particular that potentially we're, we need to grow in. But what I want you to do as I go through them is ask, how strong are we as a church in these, and how strong are we as a collaboration in our network? However you are, I know you're a network of networks, so think of the churches you're working with. How strong are you in these five that I'm going to walk through? And if you had to like give a scale of one to five, where would you land? And so uh, I'll, I'll just kind of give you a, a way to, to grade yourself. One is you're talking about it. About, what we're, about one of these things. One was going to be prayer, just as an example. You're actually talking about how to collaborate around prayer. Two would be we actually have a, a actual shared initiative with some measurables. Like in Seattle, around prayer, which will be the first one we're going to talk about, we've got, we do 40 days of prayer starting in Lent that the whole city wants, we want the whole city to join around. We're asking after that that every church would adopt one day a week that their whole church would fast and pray for the city in. And then we're hoping that we'll also do an evangelistic movement called Try Praying, which is we'll help every church learn how to teach their people how to have a conversation with a non-believer that says, would you like me to pray for you? And or as we get to know their needs, have you ever, would you like to try praying about that? So those are, that's a, just an example of an outcome that we're trying to get after that we could say we're measuring. The third would be that there's actually a team built around that measurable. Like now we got people who are taking ownership, championing that thing for our network of churches. Uh, four would be, um, that, am I losing count? Am I at four? 
Yeah, four, four would be, uh, we actually have seen movement take place. Like we've got measurable ground that's being taken that we can point to over a sustained period of time. So minimally a couple years of work into it, right? And then number five is, we now, it beca- it's a norm for us. We don't even have to plan for it. This is like the thing that we're known for in our context. So my guess is most of you aren't at a five on everything I just said, uh, or what I'm about to say. So, uh, but I want you to do that because sometimes when we listen to stuff, we're thinking about ideas, but not actual practical application for our context. So that might even give you a way to begin, where you go, hey, three of those things that you said today, Jeff, our network's weekend, or our church's weekend, so we just got to start actually getting back to number one. Let's talk about it, <laughs> and let's build a plan with some outcomes. Let's see a team built around that. Let's see some sustainability with outcomes that we can actually measure over a period of one to four years. And then let's pray God says that eventually God makes us known for that that particular thing. So we're going to look at Acts 13. And I want you to keep thinking about discipling your city. Okay, so I, 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 we have a lot of, we have not that many churches in Seattle. Uh, as I interact with a lot of the pastors uh, one of the pastors more recently is leading a larger church in a more suburban context outside of Seattle. Most people would say he's not in Seattle because uh, he's not actually in Seattle. But people say they're from Seattle if, if they're outside of Seattle all the time. Uh, and as I talk to him really honestly, I, you know, I, I interact with him and, and just say, hey, what would you say your church is known for? What would you say your people believe is the whole goal of what we're trying to do? And that's a good way to ask yourself, are these things true of us? Like, what would our church say we're known for? What do they believe we're called to do? And think of that with your network as well. So we look at Acts 13, and I want us to think through, how do we disciple a city? Think through it that way. In the beginning, it says, uh, in verse 1, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is the key I want you to think, look, just stop and, and ask, is this true of us? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said, so that they're listening, God is talking. The Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them to do. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now Luke, Luke is going to make sure you don't miss this all the way through his record of the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, right? We, you're not going to miss the fact that prayer is a key element. <clears throat> and let me say it this way. <clears throat> what we see in the early church is not just praying in terms of supplication. They certainly have that. But if you even pay attention to their supplication, it's like, God, would you open doors for the gospel to be preached? Would you give us boldness that we would speak it with power? Would you move in the hearts of people? Like the, the, the prayer was always missional, right? If you, if you read through Acts, it's like so that it might go out, so that we might have doors open, so that the gospel might be preached, so that more might be saved. Like it was always a missional emphasis to the prayer. And I'm not saying we don't pray for everybody's needs and all the other things that we pray for. I'm just saying... Is your movement, is your network praying with a missional heartbeat? God, would you open doors? Would you give greater favor? Would you send us to the lost? Would you make their hearts ready? Would you see us reach more and more people that don't yet know Jesus? And then second, is it spirit-led? Are we saying, God, you tell us what to do? And I, I would ask, is there a collaborative movement of prayer amongst the leaders in your network and your church where you are literally waiting on the Lord to speak? I know there's lots of different views in the room about whether he does or not. I would just offer that I think he does. 
And I do believe that, that the leaders of the church, especially, are meant to listen to the head. Jesus is the head of his church. He has a great plan for it. In fact, if you read all through the Acts of the Apostles, it probably should be called the Acts of Jesus by his Spirit in the church. Because it's not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's Jesus building his church by his Spirit in everyday people. And, and what we see is Jesus keeps doing work, and he still is doing work today. Jesus is just as alive as he was when he first rose from the dead. And he's just as actively involved in his church as he was in those days. And so are we collectively praying and seeking the Lord together, asking for his direction? And if we are, we will know what to do. In fact, there's a part of me that wants to go like, done with the talk. We'll just do that. Listen collectively. And here's the the key, collectively. What I love about what happened in Antioch is they are waiting on the Lord. They are worshiping. They are praying. They are fasting. And they're waiting for the Spirit to speak. And when the Spirit speaks, they all knew it. Set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas. They all heard that. And I wonder if we need to get that posture back of a listening prayer that's just said, God, we want to wait on you. We don't want to move ahead and then ask you to bless our plans. We want to listen for your plan because you will bless your plan. When you do your plan, it always works. And so that would be the first thing. Are we collectively praying together, both with a missional heartbeat, but also with a spirit-led posture that we're waiting on God to do this? If he doesn't build the house, you're wasting your time. Amen? If he doesn't build it, what are we doing? He's the head of his church. You aren't. I don't care how smart you are. You don't have enough in you to build the church. Jesus builds the church. So are we listening? Are we waiting? Are we responding? Could we say, and this is the question I want to ask, could we say with integrity, we together have heard from the Lord, and we together are doing what he said? Can we say that with integrity? And if if not, let the, the grace of the gospel give you the freedom to repent and turn back to him and say, Jesus, you're Lord, and we want you to be Lord of the church. Second, when they had preached, now we're going to jump ahead. This is jumping ahead to chapter 14. There's a lot that happens in between here. Uh, they, they heal people. They cast out demons. There's a whole lot of work that Paul does. Uh, I'm jumping ahead just for the sake of uh, the next point. Uh, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So the second thing we see is a collective work around disciple making. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Please, whenever I, whenever I hear people teach on disciple making, they, they say, oh, you mean discipleship. I'm not really into that. I'm into evangelism. I'm like, you can't say that. <laughs> disciple making in the first church, the early church, was making new disciples. So if you're like, oh, I'm into discipleship, but you're not into making new disciples. You're not into discipleship. Not biblically, right? And I don't even like that word almost anymore because I feel like discipleship is like a curriculum. You know, it's like, it's like publishers, I feel like they pick evangelism for one topic and discipleship for another topic. And then you ask, what does your book fit into? And I'm like, look, maybe we need to get rid of the word discipleship and just say, keep saying disciple making. Because disciple making feels like we actually have to go reach people. Discipleship feels like we could hang out with Christians forever right? And just get deeper in our spiritual practices. And I'm all for that. We need to grow in Christ through abiding in Christ through all the practices. But if that abiding doesn't lead us to do the work of Jesus, which is go and make disciples, then I don't know who we're abiding in. 
Because if you're abiding in him, you'll do what he wants. And he made it really clear in, in, in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. That is the big E on the I chart. That is his last words before he leaves. It is clearly his command. And so are we making disciples? And I would add, who make disciples? Okay, what's interesting, when Paul goes into a context, it says he preached the gospel. So by the way, pause. You can't make disciples apart from the gospel. Right, if you don't preach the gospel, they won't be born again. If they're not born again, they aren't regenerate. If they're not regenerate, then they're not children of God. If they're not children of God, they can't grow up to be imitators of God like dearly loved children of God. So like that, that has to precede everything else. Preach the gospel because it's through that that they're born again, that they get new life, that they can live a new life, that they have the spirit now in them to give them everything they need to do everything he commanded. So we've got to preach the gospel, but we're preaching the gospel so that they might come to be disciples of Jesus. And let's get rid of this category. There is no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. And therefore, there's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple maker. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow in the way of the master and to want to do what the master says. And I think we've created two categories, sadly, in the church. I remember I was speaking at a conference once and we were doing a panel discussion and there were some very well-known communicators up front that are leading some wonderful works throughout the country and you would know who they were if I said their names. One of, one of them uh, was asked, you know, how are you and Jeff different? <laughs> and I hated this question because I would hate when people do that. Like we should stop comparing ourselves to each other. But someone asked it and he said, well, Jeff is kind of all, for, he's like all into ninja Christians. Because he really thinks all Christians should be disciple makers. And I just don't believe that. I think most Christians won't be. And if we can just get them to be a part of a church and be in a group, that, that's a good enough for me. And I, I remember hearing that going like, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, he was being honest. Like that really is what he believes. And I would say, I want to get rid of that belief. Like there should be no norm where we think any Christian is not going to grow up into being a disciple making Christian. If, if so, we're just settling with infants. And one of the, the things that breaks my heart is seeing a church full of infants. Some of them are 40, 50 years old, and they've never made a disciple. And that's not to shame them. I'm just saying they were saved for so much more than church attendance. Amen? Right? And that, that's our job, those of you in the room, is to help people become everything Jesus intended them to become, which is become a disciple who makes disciples in their life in their workplace, in their neighborhood, whatever they're involved in, that's where he sent them. You all heard Spurgeon's words. If you say you're a Christian but not a missionary, you're just an imposter, right? Everyone's a missionary if you're a Christian. Everyone's a disciple maker if you're a Christian. So how are we doing at making disciples who make disciples? And collectively in your networks, are you helping everybody do that well? One of my convictions is if a church is good at it, it's their responsibility to help the other churches become good at it. We shouldn't be sitting around going like, our church is great at disciple making, but yours isn't, and that doesn't bother me? <laughs> that should bother me like crazy. We have a church that's really good at discipling Christians, helping Christians get formation. And I had a, a conversation with, with the lead pastor. It's a very large church, very great Bible-preaching, gospel-centered church. And he said, Jeff, we just don't know how to make disciples of non-Christians. All of our baptisms are kids we raised up in the church, we don't know how to reach anybody outside the church. And I just said, are you okay with that? And he wasn't, but he said, we don't know how to do anything different. And that bothers me. As someone who knows how to do that, how to make disciples of non-Christians, it's my responsibility to come around him and say, well, let's help your church become really good at this because there's only one church in Seattle. 
And if one part of the church is not doing well, it's our responsibility to help the whole church do better. Amen? Right? Let's get rid of the competition. There ought to be no competition in Houston between any church. If there is, it's from the pit of hell. Because it's not the heart of Christ. And I, was good. I don't need to do a talk on unity because you're already living into that. But I still need to say that because we forget it. I forget it. Like I remember when people would leave our church to go to another church, it still stung. And I had to just go like, do I really believe what I say or is it just rhetoric? Because if I really believe it, I'll say, that's a great church. And as long as you're part of a great church, I'm celebrating. Because there's only one church that just has a lot of different locations. If you're meeting another space, praise God, you're still part of the body of Christ. And that's a big win for Seattle, especially these days, because they're all moving to Texas. I don't know if you know that, but <laughs> we're losing them all to you guys. So some of you guys are going, send them back. Um... <laughs> Luke continues recording what Paul did. It says, then they returned to Lystra. So they go back to the places where they had already made disciples, to Iconium and to Antioch. And they strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And so what you see is a strengthening of disciples. And I'm going to add to it, um, it doesn't say this word, but Paul, Paul does care about this. And you know this because you read all of his letters. Leader health is a really big deal. I mean, it says it to Timothy, like, if, if you will keep watch on your own life and doctrine, you will not only save yourself, but also your hearers as well. And I'll tell you, in a city where that didn't happen well, where we saw leaders fall significantly in Seattle, I can tell you it doesn't save the hearers when the, when the leaders fall. There's thousands of people still wondering if they can trust Jesus in Seattle because of the failure of many leaders in our city. And if leaders would have attended to their emotional and spiritual health in community with, with people who get to tell them the truth about themselves and submit to whatever correction they receive, we would be in a different place right now in Seattle. I know that to be true. And I know that personally because I stepped into one of the churches and took over to try and rebuild out of the ruins. And I'm just saying, like, you're going to hear a lot of heat from me on this one. Let's call it passion, <laughs> anger, uh, because... This is the thing that's undermining the work of Jesus in our cities. We see a great move of God, and then we see leaders fall. I just got another report of another friend who fell into an affair. Didn't fall. He chose to. But he, he walked into it and continued it for years. It was hidden behind the scenes for years while he's a public national figure training everybody in disciple-making. You know what that does to the credibility of disciple-making? So I'm just going to say, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Do it in community. Take care of each other. Make sure leaders are getting healthy. And if they aren't healthy, make sure they get the help they need. This is maybe the most important thing for me right now because we can get all the strategy right. But if our hearts are not aligned with his and if our health is not spiritually well, emotionally well, then we are going to harm a lot of people. So how are we doing at that? Are we, are we keeping an eye on one another? Are we watching out for one another? Do we care enough for each other to ask the hard questions? Are we willing to tell the truth to each other? Are we willing to ask other people, what's it like to be on the other side of me? How do you experience it being with me? I asked my daughter that after I, I went through a, a four-year journey of my own emotional health. Uh, my best friend who was a guy that I handed the baton off 
to, to, to take over the very first church that I planted. He was really my son in the faith. If I, if I had a Timothy, his name was Randy. And Randy took his life. Uh, he had been three tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan and PTSD and everything else came to a head. And in a moment of darkness, he, he hung himself in his church office, leaving his wife and four kids under the age of eight. I didn't know what to do after that happened. I questioned everything, honestly. I had a lot of anger at God. Thankfully, the Psalms give us a guidebook on how to tell him the truth about what we're going through. So I was honest. I remember my wife years ago would say, Jeff, you, you like are really angry and you don't tell anybody about it. I'm like, that's not, that's not nice. He's like, but you're angry. <laughs> it's still in you. Like, you hate people. I'm like, no, I don't. We're supposed to love everybody. She goes, tell the truth. You wish some of them were dead. She's like, the Psalms have things like that in them. And I'm like, I know, but I don't want to go there. She's like, it's in your heart. Get it out. Right? It may not be right, but it's still, you can say it before God. He can handle it. And so I learned during that season to start telling the truth about what's going on inside of me. I went and got a lot of help. I'm going to talk about it later this afternoon. Um, but, but if that didn't happen, I don't know where I'd be. I'll be honest. I had some right-on-the-edge moments where I was ready to throw it all in through making some very foolish decisions in some temptation I'd never experienced. And after I got hit, hit the wall with my friend taking his life, I've never been in a darker place ever. And I've never had the thoughts I thought ever I mean, the temptation I experienced was so scary. Let's be honest. Like, I really thought I was, I was going to walk away from Jesus. And thankfully, he held me and he kept me and I'm here and I can testify to his faithfulness. But I'm telling you, if I didn't get the help I needed, I wouldn't be here. If I didn't have brothers around me who love me enough to go, you need to get help. And in that process, I remember asking my daughter after I'd done a lot of my work and I finally had the the health to be able to hear her tell me the truth about dad. I said, what was it like to be on the other side of me growing up? And she said, dad, I knew you always loved me and I knew you would always be there for me. But I have to be honest, I sometimes wondered if you would love me more if I was as, as competitive in sports as you were when you were a kid. Now, I'm glad my daughter had the courage to say that to me, but I wept when she said it. Because I never said that to her, but that's what she experienced because of my desire for competition. My kids used to tell me they hate playing games with me, right? Because if I don't win, I'm a sore loser. And it's because it was all this toxic shame I didn't know how to deal with inside of me that I'll talk about maybe this afternoon. But here's the, here's the thing. I, I just want to ask, are you willing to be on the other side of someone who will tell you the truth? And I, I remember being with a friend who we had to confront many, many times in sin, and, and people would always say, well, that's just, and they would say his name. <coughs> Have you ever been around that? You know, well, that's just Jim. That's what he's like. Anytime someone names, name becomes the substitute for sin, like that's just how he behaves. Don't justify that ever again for your friends. Go tell them the truth. You know what? You, you really are toxic. You know what? You're really not a safe person. You know what? You say things that are really ungodly. You treat people that are not, it's not kind, it's not gentle, it's not compassionate. It doesn't look like Jesus. I got to tell you the truth, man, because you're hurting people. Again, if you aren't willing to hear that, then you need to get out of the position you're in. Because if you can't be corrected, you can't have authority. All right, I spent a lot of time on that one. Did anybody with me and think that we need to deal with this one? Yeah, it's serious in the church right now. In fact, I hear people writing about how you shouldn't be compassionate and empathetic 
I'm like, which Jesus are you following? Anyway, that's a side trail. Then it says he said he strengthened the souls. He's helping them get healthy, growing them up, helping them be strong, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's what I'm talking about. That's all I've been sharing. It's like, by the way, continuing the faith is not keep believing what you're believing. It's to actually live like you believe it. <laughs> so if I say I believe in a Jesus who came for sinners, but I hate sinners, then I don't know which Jesus I believe in. I believe in a Jesus who comes to not crush the brokenhearted, not to snuff out a, a smoldering wick, but is willing to create refuge and shelter for those who are struggling and broken, and I'm not willing to do that, then I, I don't know which Jesus I'm worshiping. If our churches aren't the safest places in the city to find refuge from condemnation, then I don't know what we become. We're the religious leaders who are holding the stones instead of Jesus who stands in the way of the woman getting stoned. So he, he says, continue in the faith. And then he, he, he told them that through many tribulations, we would enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to just explain this. This entering the kingdom of God, please don't, I, I think you're all good theologians here, but the, a lot of people in the church think what that means is I'm going to heaven when I die. So this is like, am I going to heaven or not question? That's not it. Because when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about experiencing the present rule and reign of his lordship. Right, that's what it is. So the kingdom of God, is, he says, it's not out there as, you're, as though you're going to find it. He says it's in you. It's when you submit your life to Jesus and his rule and reign gets expressed through your life. And then everywhere you go, it starts to taste and look like the kingdom. Right? And what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is what life would look like if he was ruling and reigning all things. And we know he is, but not everyone's submitted to that rule and reign yet. Right? So that's going to be tangible expression of the kingdom, feeding the, the hungry, taking care of the poor and the homeless, uh, helping people get reconciled. I mean, just go through a list and say, what is true in the kingdom? And if whatever's true in the kingdom should be true of where you go, the, the relationships you're in, the spaces you inhabit. And so why, that, why does he say you're going to suffer? Because it takes suffering to bring the kingdom of God to this world. Amen? When we stand up against racism, you're going to suffer for it in this culture. When you stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, you're going to suffer for it in this culture. When you forgive those who won't forgive you back, you're going to suffer in this culture. When you love your enemies, you're going to suffer in this culture. When you're willing to be friends with people who don't vote the same way as you, you're going to suffer in this culture. And I could keep going. Right? And yet, what have we been taught? And this, this is one of the, the grave misgivings of the church. I'm, I'm concerned that our salvation message is primarily based on I'm not going to hell when I die, so my entire goal for salvation is to avoid any suffering altogether. When my primary message is here's how you get out of pain, then everything I'm going to have to say to you is how can you find more comfort and avoid more pain and live a life that's primarily about you. But that is not the kingdom Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. People are going to hate you. They're going to say all kinds of things about you. But just know this. I've overcome the world. Have good, have good cheer. Have heart. Don't give up. Have courage. And I want to say what Paul, I think, is saying to the church. He's going, I know that you're excited about this new good news that you received, and that you are loved by God, and you are accepted by God, and you have an eternal destiny, and it's all really, really amazing. But just so you know, until he returns, it's not going to be easy. And we're not going to not do it because it's hard. In fact, he warns them, it's through tribulation that you must enter the kingdom. It's through tribulation that you must experience the rule and reign of Christ in this moment. 
Partly because you have to die to your own flesh to do it. And so how are we doing it? I'm just going to label this. I know this, I, I just did a whole lot of preaching and I'm going to just summarize it and serve your city. <laughs> and that's just a category, but, but how are we serving our city in such a way that greater Houston is going, I'm just telling you, the church is serving this city more than anybody. Christians, people who love Jesus, they give their life for this city. They love her like nobody else. I know of a group in Birmingham who started even businesses for the sake of making it easier for those who didn't have education to get a job and help them eventually learn how to start their own business. And one of the leaders of this organization was going to move out of town and the mayor met with them. And he said, you're not taking everything with you, are you? He said, what do you mean? He's like, are all these people that you've been discipling and mentoring and that are starting business, are they leaving? He said, oh no, it's just my wife and I and the kids. Everybody else is staying. He goes, good, because we would have to raise taxes if you left. What if our nonprofit status was dependent upon us actually lowering the tax need? That's what it's there for, right? The reason why we get a tax break is because the work we're doing in our city is meant to lower the tax need, the tax burden. What, what, and and that maybe you're all doing that, and you're all going like, man, we're knocking out of the park there. I know that we have a long way to go in Seattle. I was just in a breakfast meeting yesterday morning with about 40 or 50 leaders from the city, and we're praying and asking God, like, what would good news look like to the city of Seattle? I mean, city, city of Seattle does not like the church at all. I mean, they, they don't think we care one bit about it. We do, but it's, our reputation isn't great. And some of it's because of agendas, and I mean, I could explain a lot of ways, but you know what? What Peter says to the, to the scattered ones in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he says, even if they think you're doing wrong, let, let's continue to live good lives so that one day they'll give God glory on the day of visitation. He's like, even if they judge you for caring for them, love them regardless. And one day it's going to be clear that you were doing this as unto the Lord, and it was really good for them. So we were praying through what does it look like. One guy got up, he goes, man, I just, I, you know, I'm up sometimes till two in the morning cleaning graffiti on the streets. He's a tech guy, super, super sharp guy. Uh, really well-spoken. He said, I would just love to see if the church would join me in starting to help clean up our, our city. It's not hard. He said, I'll, I'll teach you all how to take graffiti off because maybe we could beautify the city and then the city would be glad the church is here. One small thing, but I'm like, I'm in, man. I want to I go clean up some graffiti. We had some, another guy who's like just feeding the homeless in this one spot for four years. He's planted two churches just through feeding the homeless. Most of his church is all homeless people. It's like, but you know what, the, the city loves that guy now because he's helping solve a problem. And we, we could keep going on and on. It's like, how many problems does Houston have that the church is responsible for? What would it look like to collectively own it together as a network of churches and say, we want to care for this space in our city together? And maybe you're already doing that. So way to go, but there's probably a lot more to be done. Amen. It says, that after they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believe. And so what we see is new churches getting started. And I, this, I don't even need to hard, really beat the drum on that one for you guys. I would say this has been the thing you've done from what I can see quite faithfully over the years. And I just want to commend you for seeing a collaboration around church planning. I'm sure you can grow and strengthen in it. There's a, this is a very big city. From what I understand, it's with the second fastest growing city in the country. Is that right? It's growing fast. Uh, it's obviously a lot of cement to fill. 
That was a joke. There's a lot of room still. So a lot of people are coming here. And so there's a lot of churches that are going to need to be planted. But I, I added in New Kingdom initiatives. I think when we read the Acts account, we forget that most of the people who were spreading the gospel were business leaders. Right? And Paul's a tent maker. We've got a fabric maker on his team. We've got some professionals. On, I mean, the, you list the, all of it, probably about 91 people or so in his team. None of them, or very few of them, were theologically trained, quote-unquote, pastor types. They're all people who had a normal life and decided to give that life over to the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. And as a result, the gospel spread like crazy all throughout the, the known world at that time. So I added new initiatives because I'm realizing, like even in my own city, helping business leaders actually do their work for the sake of the gospel, to bring the kingdom to bear in all of life, having teachers be trained to see Jesus brought into the classroom by the way they love and serve. I mean, there's a lot of different ways this can happen. Is a part of how the gospel is going to spread throughout Greater Houston. You're not going to fill Greater Houston with the power and presence of Jesus just through church gatherings. I think you know that, right? Even though you guys have really big ones, I hear. <laughs> but that's still not how you're going to reach Houston. Houston doesn't get reached on Sunday. Houston gets reached Monday through Saturday. That's how it works. So we've got to see new works getting started with kingdom values. I'm headed to Charleston next week. We're helping them think through a whole citywide strategy. Part of it is going to be doing a disciple-making lab, helping every church that wants to get more fruitful in disciple-making disciples. But second, I'm working with marketplace leaders, and we're helping them think through how they could reimagine their business as a mission outpost for Jesus in their city. And so those are two things we're trying to do in that place. And I would just ask you, are you thinking whole holistically about this versus just thinking of the church. I'm all for the church, right? I'm thank Jesus for the church. But remember, the church of Jesus is people, not a building and not an event. And so the people that come to gather with you, they are the church, and your job is to equip them to bring the good news of the kingdom everywhere they go every day, all right? So how are you doing on these five? In fact, I know that you're framing, I know from talking with Chad, I know other cities around the country and around the world are saying these seem like good kind of initiatives or, or, or values or elements that we should all get around and say, how do we collaborate more intentionally around each one of these for the sake of gospel saturation in our city? So I'll just pause. Uh, as you think about that, which, one are, which of these are you strongest in? Which ones need greater attention? And I'll just suggest that I think number two and number three are usually the ones that get overlooked. That's why I put a little more heat on those two. Because <laughs> here's the deal. You can plant a church and not make disciples, especially in Texas. It's hard to do that in Seattle because they aren't going to go to your church. We have a lot of people come from Texas to plant a church, and I'll say plant a church in Seattle, and they don't make it. Because they, put, they thought planning a church was running a service, having good music, having good teaching, having good children's ministry, and nobody in Seattle is really that concerned about that because they're not coming. Like my non-Christian friends, and this is increasingly so, my non-Christian friends tell me I would, I would never come to the building that you preach in on Sunday, but I would come to your house. And so just a couple of years ago, I stepped down from my teaching position at Doxa Church, and I'm leading a little church in my house with my non-Christian friends. I don't get paid to do it. I, I get paid other ways in my life, so I, I'm able to do that. And um, they're coming to faith in Jesus. And they keep saying, if more people in Seattle knew there was stuff like this available, I think they would be interested. 
which makes me want to make sure I help all the church get out of the box, into the home, into the everyday life. That's an area of weakness for a lot of churches. When I ask most pastors, what do you think you're most weak at? They say, making disciples who could make disciples. And that's just, I say that just to say, if that's you, you're not alone. It's about 97% of pastors say, I don't know how to do that. Okay, and so we'll spend some time on that if we can today. I think I'm out of my time. Is that right? I'm supposed to be done at 11.30? So then, if I had more time, this is what we were going to do. So we might do that this afternoon. (laughs) 